Hi, this is David Flowers, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, welcome. If you're visiting with us, my name is David Flowers. I'm the senior pastor here at Grantham. I want to thank you for joining us for our fall kickoff Sunday. Uh, today we begin a new sermon series, a seven-week fall sermon series called The Gospel of the Kingdom. What it is, why it matters, and how it mobilizes the church. You could summarize the series this way. The world seems to be falling apart, and the darkness is visible all around us. It raises questions like, what is God doing about it? Where are things going? How should we respond to it all? And Jesus said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. But what is the gospel of the kingdom? And how do we partner with God as believers in his good news? So over the next seven weeks, we're going to explore the redemptive story of how God and what what it looks like when the gospel intersects with our lives and impacts the world through the local church. And here's an overview of our series. I won't show this every week, but I will in the first sermon in in this series. Today, gospel is story. We're going to look at what it means to conceive, to conceptualize, and to articulate the gospel as story, sort of a 30,000-foot view of that. And next week, we'll look at gospel truths, what sorts of doctrine and beliefs and things are necessary for us to believe about the good news, to know that we actually have the good news. And then week three, the gospel in you. What does it look like when we embrace this story, when we accept these truths, and what does it do for our own identity? How does it change us and transform us individually? And week four, we'll look at how this impacts the church, what a gospel community looks like. Week five, gospel living. Pastor Melissa will be speaking, and she'll be sharing with us uh, what it looks like to flesh out the gospel in every area and aspect of our lives. And in week six, gospel to others. What does it even mean to share the gospel today? What does evangelism look like, and what does it not look like? We'll look at that in week six. And then the final sermon in the series we've called Gospel Saturation. It's this idea of what does it look like when we are motivated to go out and to share the gospel with our neighbors and our community, to see ourselves as a part of one church in a given location with a passion that every man, woman, and child would know the good news of Jesus Christ. Amen? So that's what we're doing in this series, and that's where we are going. I know we've prayed a lot already in this uh, service, but would you join me one more time and then ask God to center us and prepare us to receive the word. Father, we, we thank you, Lord, for this, this day and this opportunity to come together and to worship you. Lord, we bring all kinds of things into this room this morning. Some of us are happy. Some of us are sad. Uh, Father, there's, there's a lot to be sad about. You said to 
rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn, and we do that. And Father, we want to recognize that there are spiritual powers and forces at work that would keep us from hearing the plain truth of the gospel, the gospel truth. So we ask that you would protect us from those powers. We rebuke those powers and the evil that would keep us from hearing the truth. Uh, Father, now fill me with your spirit. Help me to articulate the gospel so that we would be set free by the truth. For it's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Would you grab your Bible and turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 1. We'll begin our series in Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew back in front of you. You can also use a Bible on your phone. I'll be reading from the New International Version, the NIV. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. He said, The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let's think about the gospel as story. That's what we've entitled this message, Gospel as Story. Did you notice in Mark chapter 1 there, the gospel is a story? In fact, you you look at that, what Mark tells us, there's no way to really make sense of that unless you understand the larger biblical narrative. We look at this, we don't see the gospel as four spiritual laws. We don't see the gospel as the Roman road. We don't see it as an atonement theory or even a sinner's prayer. 
Now listen to how Mark began his gospel. Chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, he said, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. So notice, the gospel is a story. Something has come before Jesus, of which he says here, Isaiah the prophet has foretold. And then something comes after, i.e., the whole entire book of Mark, which records the life, the teachings, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. So the gospel is a story. You see, to understand the good news, we need to grasp the larger redemptive narrative of God's work in the world. As we'll see this morning, we end up distorting the good news when we don't view the gospel as story. But before we look at that story, I want to give us a a common or, let's say, a shared definition of gospel and kingdom for this series and beyond. So let's define those terms this way. So you know when I use them, this is what we're talking about. What is the good news? It is the gospel story of how God has been at work in the world and is now redeeming it in Jesus Christ who will one day return to bring the fullness of the kingdom. We believe that's a literal return. We'll talk some of it about that next week. So the gospel is story of how God has been at work and what God plans to do through Jesus Christ, is doing and plans to do. Now what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? It is the reign and the rule of God on the earth, which always looks like Jesus. If it doesn't look like Jesus, guess what? It's not the kingdom of God. Now you just think about that word itself, kingdom. This is the king's domain. What it looks like when God's reign and rule, his domain, is going out across and all over the earth. It looks like loving others. It looks like healing, reconciling, sacrificing self, showing mercy, doing justice, these sorts of things. It looks like Jesus. And why is this story so important, the gospel story? Well, well, think about it. As human beings, we need story to make sense of who we are, to make sense of our purpose and our meaning, where we come from and where we're going. This is why we tell stories. As, you know, as soon as man could draw or write They were telling stories. So stories still have this impact because stories, the stories we tell are the stories that we live into, even if they're subconscious or intuitive. That is, the culture and society around us is always telling a story. It doesn't have to necessarily be um, the way Mark is telling a story here from beginning to end, but we get it in the American narrative even, and and, uh, consumerism, the messages that we hear in advertisements, uh, what we do when we go to ball games, or what we do when we go to a school program in the beginning or, or at the end. We're always being told and being invited into a story because stories They tell us who we are. They tell us how to live. It impacts our soul and it directs the entire course of our life and ultimately the direction of humankind. So story is important. Story matters. Think about how we've been doing this for thousands of years. Here's just a few of the stories that we've told in the past and some that we still tell today, maybe just in different versions. As I said, we we began telling stories in cave paintings. 
As early as we could do that, we were trying to tell a story of of how we got here, how to make sense of the universe, of the sun, the moon, and the stars, and our place in it. We get this in uh, as early as ancient Sumerian poems, like the Epic of Gilgamesh. Some of you know that from, from school. Or the ancient, ancient Babylon, the, the Enuma Elish, they told stories of how creation happened. And the way they told the story said something about who we are and why we're here and where things are going. So the ancient Hebrews did that too, even using some of those themes in Genesis 1 and 2, but to tell the story differently. And for example, the, the earth and the cosmos didn't come into being through sex and violence as many creation myths would tell, but instead it's a story of love. And God didn't need stuff to make more stuff. He created ex nihilo. The, he means he created out of nothing. Others told stories. The ancient Greeks, they to- told stories very similar to the other pagan myths. They told stories of their gods and, and who we are in relationship to the gods and how it shapes our destiny. Plato, you remember the philosopher Plato, he had what is called Plato's cave as a way of illustrating what truth is and, and how to pursue the truth, the, the things that are real and the things that aren't real. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go watch The Matrix. See, Matrix 4 is coming out, right? This is all about Plato's cave, that the things that we see aren't reality. We need to wake up and see things as they, as they truly are and enter into the story, not to be duped any further. Rome also did this, the Roman Empire. They had their mythological being, uh, beginnings. You, you think about Romulus and Remus, the two brothers who one committed fratricide and was suckled by a she-wolf and talk about the glorious foundings of Rome. America does the same thing. We tell stories to say who we are and, and in a lot of cases how we're exceptional and better than everybody else. Uh, world religions, they have stories. I have a, a pamphlet here, it's a mini chart. You think about all the religions of the world and some of the things that, that it tells us is what they believe, uh, their sacred writings, what they believe about God, what they believe about Christ, the, the story that they tell about life and death and the afterlife. There's all kinds of stories, stories that we're being told all the time. Again, as I said, sometimes it's subconscious, sometimes it's more intuitive, but all the time we're being impressed upon to believe a story. The Judeo-Christian view of that, uh, very generally speaking, is about creation, fall, redemption, and resurrection. This is where we've come from. This is what's happened. This is what God's doing about it. And this is where things are going. Of course, one that's very prevalent and impactful on us today, even if we're not realizing it and uh, haven't even heard of the word, is, is scientism. That is that science, particularly the hard sciences alone, give us truth. And that, that narrative would say, yes, things are a mystery. The universe is a mystery and how it began, maybe one day we'll know. But what is clear is that you must create your own meaning, which is usually whatever the dominant culture is telling you. And then just take solace in science and in nature by which will one day end in a big freeze, rip, or crunch. (laughs) Isn't that hopeful? Take, for example, Neil Neil deGrasse Tyson 
in the reboot of Carl Sagan's Cosmos said, let there be no doubt that as they are currently practiced, there is no common ground between science and religion. So you can even be fundamentalist with science. And that is the narrative. That is the story. I mean, if you embrace the scientism worldview and the narrative, that's it. Good luck on creating your own meaning and purpose. And what happens when you die? I don't know. Just don't think about it. Don't worry about it. Just live for today. What else is there? And of course, lastly, there is this American dream story, which is me-centered. It's success-driven. It's about maybe making money. It's about being important. It's about expressing your individuality, about being noticed, because you failed if you haven't done that. And so whatever you have to do to get noticed, just post it on Twitter or do whatever you need to do to become famous. Get your 15 minutes of fame and you haven't made. You're you've created your own meaning. It's about immediate gratification. It's about being concerned about uh, now, but not about life later. It isn't really concerned about life beyond consuming and the rat race that it's calling us to enter into. Therefore, we tend to either ignore the bigger questions of life. Think about it. Who am I? Is there a God? Is God good? If so, why is there evil in the world? And where are things going? Questions like that, big questions. And so we either ignore them or we distract ourselves or maybe some folks medicate themselves so that we don't have to deal with the existential crisis that naturally comes. So we ask those questions that don't have answers. And this creates, it does create a crisis in our increasingly secular age. So all that to say this, We need a better story, one that can give us some answers, maybe not all the answers, but some answers, and give us some meaning, but can also appreciate the mystery and the wonder of life, a story that helps us love, a story that helps us forgive, to heal, to hope, and to flourish as human beings, and one that is honest about who we are It is honest about evil. It's honest about sin and death. And that we cannot save ourselves. It's not wishful thinking, but it's a true story that's rooted in history. Is there a story like that? We would say as a Christian church, yes. Yes, there is. It's the gospel story. But what is the gospel story? What is the story that we tell as Christians? And more specifically, what does gospel story look like from this 30,000-foot view? Let's look at that this morning. But first, I'd like to address a a common misunderstanding about the gospel story. Let's, Let's begin there. And I want to give credit to Tim Mackey of the Bible Project for articulating it this way. Look at this. This is the story that your non-Christian neighbors think, most likely think that you believe as a Christian. If they know that you're a Christian, this is what they think the Christians believe. First, there is the earth, and there is the earth, of course, God created, and sin happens. We can see this in Genesis 3. And ultimately, through the story of Israel, Jesus comes to die for our sins so that we can be, for, be forgiven. And notice what happens in this story, which is a very me-centered story. 
We're living our lives along the line there, and this is again what they think, that um, we're either above the line trying to live pretty good, and, and if we can do that, and maybe, maybe, maybe it is we believe the right things, or we've said the right kind of prayers, you know, we, we, um, we've positioned ourselves on the side of truth, well, maybe we'll get to heaven one day, or if we don't do that, if we believe some wrong things, if we didn't live a good life, then, then we'll go will go to hell. And in both heaven and hell, there are these kinds of images of heaven being sort of this ethereal, cloud-like state. You know, maybe there's some angels and maybe uh, some pearly gates or something like that. St. Peter's there, because you've heard all the jokes about St. Peter being there. Uh, and then hell would be some sort of subterranean uh, torture chamber where God is sadistically punishing people throughout all of time. Did I get that right? I think that's probably what most of your neighbors think that you believe. Now, the hard truth of it is, is this, and some of you may be thinking, but, but that is what I believe, right? Maybe that's what some of, you, some of you are thinking. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with this story. It's not the biblical story. It's not the biblical story, and it doesn't actually reflect the beliefs of Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom. So if this isn't the correct story, then what is it then? What is the correct story? And I submit to you, this is what the Bible shows us. It's what, this is what the Bible tells us. The Bible actually says that God created two spaces. In the beginning, God created the heavens and what? the earth. So God created two spaces or, or two realms or, or different dimensions. We'd say there's God's space, which is we call heaven, and then there is our space, space, the earth and the universe, the cosmos. And the Bible says that the spaces were, were shared and certainly shared more freely in the Garden of Eden. It said God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. God had a relationship and a connection to his people in a way early on that he didn't later on after the fall. You see, but, but sin tears these spaces apart and separates us from God. This is what Genesis 3 is all about there in the garden narrative. Yet these spaces, they still overlap and they, they interlock. And this is actually the Jewish concept of this. The Jews uh, thought about it, how at times the, the overlap of these spaces would become clear, where heaven would be breaking through into earth. Uh, Mount Sinai, when Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments or sees the burning bush in the Old Testament, there are even miracles maybe that prophets would do or, or you would see the parting of the Red Sea. Uh, these are moments when heaven was truly breaking into earth. We'd see the overlap, the visibility of the overlap of those spaces. The tabernacle was all about that, where heaven and earth touched. And we especially see this in the temple. You say the holy of holies. Maybe you've heard of that before, where the ark of the covenant was kept. And you remember the cherubim's wings. Uh, we, we call the, the, um, the mercy seat, right? was believed to be the place where Heaven and earth actually touched. This is what they, they did to symbolize this. And the, so priests once a year on atonement day would come in and pour blood over that, that one place above the Ark of the Covenant. 
So this was the thinking of the Jewish world and would have been the thinking of Jesus that God created two spaces which are interlocking and overlapping. So contrary to the sort of this deist perspective, heaven is a long way away in a planet on the other side of the cosmos, which we're going to fly away to one day. No, the Bible is telling a different story. As you know, eventually that symbol of heaven and earth overlapping and interlocking is, is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. And then Isaiah says in chapter 65, verse 17, that there will be a new heaven and earth. Isaiah is speaking of the marriage of these two spaces and that once again God will come to rest on the earth. So this is what God's good future looks like. Are you with me? Are you with me this morning? All right. And so look at this. Not only did Isaiah prophesy this future, that the two spaces would become one, but John tells us this on the island of Patmos in his his vision in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. See, here's the mistake that we've often made. We think about streets of gold and, and the gates of the city, and we, we merge that with this idea of heaven, but that's not actually what's happening. John, in his vision, he, the curtain is pulled back, and in chapters 4 or 5 of Revelation, he sees heaven as it is now, God's space. He describes it as a throne room. He says he sees angels and creatures worshiping, and they're representatives from all nations and tongues worshiping God. And he goes on to tell the story of how the martyrs underneath the throne are crying out, how long, O Lord, until you finally bring your kingdom, until you resurrect and renew all things. You see, the real story isn't that we're flying away to heaven one day. It is that heaven is coming to earth. And so what happens in Revelation 21 hasn't happened yet. (laughs) Do you get this? The marriage of heaven and earth hasn't happened yet. This is... This is, though, the gospel story. For the disciple John, he believes this because of what happened in Jesus, which we'll get to that in just a minute. This is how we know this is going to happen because Jesus has shown that. But first notice, God made heaven and earth. Genesis is very clear about that. And so you're probably thinking, if you look at the illustration above, what's missing? You say, what about hell? Is there a hell? And if so, where, where did hell come from? And where does it fit in the story of the good news of Jesus Christ? Well, I think we should begin by acknowledging that whatever hell is, look at this, it comes into the story later. It comes into the story after creation. You go read Genesis 1 and 2, there's no mention of hell. It comes into this story later on. And if you know your Bible, you should know that hell is first something that humans have created. Think about this. How have we done this? Well, if you start back in Genesis 3 and you read through those first chapters of Genesis and get to chapter 11, uh, biblical scholars say Genesis chapter 3 through 11 is, is uh, a certain kind of telling of the story. It's a, really a retelling of the narratives and the cosmology and the, the stories of meaning and purpose that the ancient world would tell, and it tells the story differently. But it does say that the world is the way that it is 
in all of its sin and its evil and its darkness and its brokenness because of us. Hell has come into the picture because of what we have done. We've brought hell on the earth. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 32, uh, Paul tells us, you know, that uh, in the beginning, this is what happened. And eventually, God gives us over to our sin and to our consequence. He gives us over to the hell in which we have created. And you may remember there's this verse in the epistle of James, chapter 3, verse 6. He says that our tongue can be ignited by the fires of hell. It's like we speak hell into existence. We create hell on earth. I know what some of you are thinking, you get a little nervous. He's saying, well, he saying that there's no hell. No, now look, the very sobering thing is that Jesus speaks quite a bit about this concept of hell, but what is Jesus talking about? The word that he actually uses in the original language is Gehenna, which refers to a town dump in Jerusalem. It was actually southeast of Jerusalem. There's a valley called the Valley of Hinnom. And the Canaanites before the Hebrews and some bad wicked Hebrew kings would sacrifice their children there. It's not a place that they wanted to go or have anything to do with. And so they created a town dump out of it. And there was always fires burning, whether it was trash or dead animals or whatever it was, that, that was the symbol and this imagery and a metaphor of eternal destruction. And so Jesus warned of that, that you can enter into hell in the present and that can somehow extend into an eternal state. Is that God can give one over into their decisions and give them over to the hell of which they've been living and in some cases been inviting on themselves. So we need to recognize that. But whatever we might say about hell eternally, However you conceive of that, we first must recognize that hell is with us. It is here with us, and we created it by misusing human energy and human freedom. And folks, I want us to understand this very clearly. God hates hell. The story of the Bible is God wanting to heal this world and get the hell out of it. This is the gospel story. Are you with me? So Jesus comes onto the scene in the story, through the story of Israel, and what God was doing, going all the way back to calling Abraham out to follow the one true God, that story. Jesus comes in to the story of Israel, and he confronts the powers of hell. Look at this. He confronts the powers of sin and death. He confronts it in you and me, and, and he seeks to drive it out with the gospel of the kingdom because Jesus, who is God in the flesh, hates hell. And he wants to get hell out of this world and he wants to get the hell out of you. You follow me? Folks, that's good news. It's good news. But here's the thing, it's also hard. It's also hard. And I'd venture to say and submit to you, it's bad news for some people who don't want this. But follow this. This is good news. But it's hard to accept because it means that Jesus is coming after you with a scalpel, metaphorically speaking, <laughs> to get the hell out of you, to, to exercise that, to deal with our brokenness and our fallenness. 
to cut it out, to root it out, all that is hellish and doesn't reflect the life of heaven in you, if you'll allow him to do that work as his disciple. Now, that's an interesting way to define disciple, isn't it? Disciples of Jesus are those who, through our journey of knowing and getting to know Jesus and embracing the gospel, is allowing Jesus to get the hell out of us to restore us, eventually to resurrect us, to make us all that God created us to be. This is the only way that it happens. It's not gonna happen through technological advances. It's not gonna, be, it's not gonna happen through, let's just share a message, hug a peasant near you and our coexist bumper stickers. This is how it happens, the gospel of Christ in us which involves getting the hell out of us. Think about the story of Jesus. Uh, The story of Jesus is that God comes to the world that he created. He's what we call in theology incarnated. John chapter one, verse 14 said, the word that is Jesus became flesh, right? The word is an ink, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, John said, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So what is the gospel? It's about Jesus' life, it's about his teachings, and it's about the coming kingdom. Yes, of course, with warnings of hell and its final consequence. And we look at the life and the teachings of Jesus. Jesus shows us what it means to be human. Jesus shows us what it means to embrace the truth and to live into the truth, to embrace the good news that the kingdom of God is coming. It's already, but it's not here fully just yet. So we live in the overlap of these kingdoms, the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God. And in the death of Jesus, in the death of Jesus, hell exhausts its power on Christ. Jesus takes our sin upon himself. He restores us to right relationship with God, and he offers us a new life, his life, the life he lived, the life he has, the life he has to give. And as Paul wrote this, I love this verse in Colossians chapter 1, verse 19 through 20, Paul said, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus. Look at this picture. The cross in the middle of those spaces where the temple used to symbolize the coming together of heaven and earth, Jesus now is that. Remember what Jesus said. What did Jesus say? He told the Pharisees and the religious leaders, destroy this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. Now, they they thought he was talking about, you know, Herod's temple, but Jesus was talking about his body. The Word became flesh. Jesus was the walking temple. Jesus is the gospel on two feet. Jesus is the kingdom of God in flesh. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus dies a death that you and I should die. He takes the consequences and yes, even the wrath of God onto himself, takes it to the grave and God raises him from the dead. And see, we get this picture. In the resurrected body of Jesus, a body that can appear and disappear. Remember, the disciples in the locked room. They wanted you to know that. The door was locked. Jesus appeared. How does he do that? It's because Jesus has a body that is heaven and earth together. And so the resurrection of Jesus says we know, if you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, 
And all scholars, Christians or not, believe that Jesus lived and that he died and the tomb was empty. You and I have to decide why it was empty. Because we believe, and we confess this as the Christian church, and we say it in the Apostles' Creed, that God raised Jesus from the dead. So what does that mean? It means that heaven and earth are coming together. Jesus is the prototype. Jesus is the sign that says this is where things are going. So you're either, either moving with that story or you're moving away from that story. You're either living into that story or you're trying to create meaning and purpose on your own and running against the grain and against the current. You say, well, Pastor David, it doesn't really seem that way. I look, turn on the news, I look around, it seems like things are pretty bad. Yeah, well, that's just our perspective in the moment. We, we can't see the forest from, for the trees. We actually can't see the advances that we've made and the good things that have come because of the gospel of Christ and because of the church. Because all we can see is the nastiness and the darkness. And to become gospel people, Easter people, is to have a new set of eyes. You know, Jesus told Nicodemus this. Not everybody can see the kingdom of God at work. Not everybody can see what my spirit is doing. In order to see it, you have to be what? Born again. And not just born again. I said a prayer way back when. It is to continue to live into that story, to be washed over by this story through this book and through God's people, through the hymns and through the liturgy. We're reminding ourselves of who we are, what we believe, where things have come from and where they're going. Because all of that story says something about who I am, why I'm here, and where things are headed. This is the good news. This is the gospel story. That what God started, what God began, He will finish. And in Jesus, heaven and earth are coming together. This is good news, church. This is good news. In his resurrection, as I said, Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And that's exactly what he does. God raises Jesus from the dead. He begins the movement in the marriage of God's space and our space. And the resurrected Jesus is evidence that God is doing and will do what he promised. So the question for you and I this morning is, do you believe that? And does your belief in that manifest itself in moments when you're watching terrible stuff on the news? Does it manifest itself when you're being overcome by fear and anxiety and the darkness of depression? Does the good news of Jesus have any real impact on our lives? Or are we just Gnostics? Are we just, you know, following along that, that top narrative there where it's just kind of where our mental state is and did we check off on all the right theological ideas and doctrines? No. The gospel... The true gospel is for real living, and it ought to impact our lives. And if we really believe it, we ought to want to tell other people about it. Amen. N.T. Wright said in his book, Surprised by Hope, a book I strongly recommend if you're trying to break yourself free from that, that top narrative there. He says this in his book, Surprised by Hope. He says, Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of God's new project, not to snatch people away from earth to heaven, but to colonize earth with the life of heaven. That, after all, is what the Lord's Prayer is about. And we pray that every single Sunday here at Grantham, don't we? 
We're proclaiming the gospel when we pray those words. Remember the words of Jesus. He prayed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Therefore, Jesus says, repent. That word simply means, hey, stop what you're doing, where you're going, how you're thinking, and turn and go a different direction. Change your thinking. As I've said before here, uh, change your stinking thinking, get a checkup from the neck up right? Think about the story that you're embracing. Quit living the me-centered American dream sort of fable and myth and believe in the truth of the gospel, which is rooted in history. Amen? Jesus says, repent and believe the good news. You can't embrace the good news and believe the good news if you think that you can simultaneously keep going down the, the road of the world. We have to get on the Jesus road because the kingdom Jesus said is coming. The kingdom is coming. Say that. Say that with me. The kingdom is coming. One more time. The kingdom is coming. Do you believe that, church? The spaces are on their way to becoming one. God said it, and that settles it. Thus, hell, let's get back to that, can't remain. Hell can't remain. So, where will it go? If you look at the last pages of the Bible, where and what is hell? It'd be good to ask that question. Uh, we could put it like this. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, hell is God's monument to human dignity and choice. Uh, my, I was sitting at the dinner table the other day, and my son Canaan, who just turned nine, um, said, Daddy, why did God create a world where things could go wrong? Isn't that something for a nine-year-old to say? <laughs> That's a really good question, son. It's because God is love. And God created the best possible world for a loving God to create. He had to create us with choice. He had to create us with the freedom to choose Him or not. The freedom to love or not. The freedom to make peace and not war. The freedom to love your neighbor and not hate your neighbor. The freedom to embrace the unity of the kingdom rather than political polarization. Now, I didn't say all that to my nine-year-old, but you get the point. This is the choice that, that a loving God has given us. And this is the best possible world that he could create. We're not automatons. We're not robots. But one day, through our choosing and through God's work in the world when new heaven and earth happens, our will will be perfected as Jesus' will was, and there will be no more sin. There will be no more death. There will be no more coronavirus. And anything and everything that plagues us in this world, and folks, this is good news. If someone refuses to return to their Creator, Lewis would say, re refuses to be healed by the great physician. If someone rejects God's salvation from death and disaster, if someone does not wish to live in God's good future where Christ is Lord and King, then God will honor that decision. God will give them over, as Paul said in Romans 1, over to their choices. But what God will not do, church, what God will not do is to continue to allow hell to ruin his good world, which is why he plans to cast it out forever. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel story. And we accept this story, we allow this story, story to intersect and impact every area of our life.
we will begin to find, as the Apostle Paul said, it is the power of God unto salvation. For this gospel, for by this gospel, we will discover who God is, it is what He is like, who we are, and our purpose, what God is doing about evil and wants you to do about it, and shapes us by the hope of it, by kingdom imagination and the glorious expectation we can have in this life, even in the face of so much evil and the fear of death. This news is good because it changes everything. But only if you believe it. And not just up here, but right here. As Jesus said, we first must repent of our way with all the competing stories, saying no to the American dream because in order to have it, you have to be asleep. To say no to scientism, to say no to the other narratives, whatever they are, are you aware of them? Jesus says, repent. Accept the good news of the kingdom for ourselves because that's how we're going to live life to the fullest and be assured of the life to come. Does that make sense, church? As we come to the end of the message, let's reflect and respond to these two questions together. I I seriously hope you'll give some thought to this. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand and and, and know what's going on in your world and what's going on in your life this morning. The first question is, what story am I living in today? What story is that? Is it the gospel story that we were looking at? Or is it some other narrative? I hope you'll be honest with yourself. I mean, even if you've been in the church for years and years and years, you still may not be living into the gospel story. So think about that. What story am I living in today? And then number two, how can I live more fully into this gospel story? May the Holy Spirit show you how to do that. What things need to change? What kinds of things do you need to stop doing? What kinds of things do you need to start doing? How do you need to orient your life differently than the way that it's oriented now? May the Holy Spirit help you to do that. Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, and we are, one, taken aback by the simplicity of this story, but also its complexity. Paradoxically, that it's very simple yet very mysterious. Lord, most of all, we recognize that we are broken, made in your image, but broken and not as we should be, and so there's a part in all of us that wants to scoff at this message, wants to resist it, Mainly not because of some philosophy, Lord, or some worldview or even our beliefs, but mainly because you're God and we're not. And so like Adam and Eve, they took from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thinking that they could be you. Lord, so first thing this morning, we want to repent of that. We are not you. And your scriptures tell us that when we choose to live according to what we think is right and good, even creating meaning for ourselves, that it is futile. 
I pray this morning, Lord, that we would come to embrace, and Holy Spirit, you would help us all to embrace the gospel story as the Bible tells it. And if there is anyone here this morning that does not know you and hasn't begun to believe in this story and to walk in it, that today would be the day. Holy Spirit, move in this place as we worship the most beautiful name of all and as we look forward to your kingdom come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.